Thanks, Shelly. Hey, Doug, would you be willing to post that prayer to Slack? Could you do that? I think I have like two pennies in my pocket here. Uh, my name is Grady. Good to be with you guys this morning. I'm the pastor here at Maricopa Springs, and it's great to see all of your faces. Um, before I get into our passage from Luke 13, and man, Shelly, thank you for reading that. I, it, I, I'm, I'm, I was just sitting up here realizing how precious it is to be gathered together with the saints of the Lord, just reading his word together. Um, before I get into that, though, I'm going to do something a little bit different. Our uh, student ministry, Crux, is leaving for camp this afternoon. Um, and Jim, our youth pastor, is after that leaving for the Philippines and going to be gone for a month and a half. So if you are a student who is going to camp, I want you to come up here right now, right up here. And Jim as well, come on up here. Yeah, I'm going to make you stand up in front of everybody. <clears throat> Just stand right there. And now everybody else, if you are able and willing, come on up. I would love for you to, to gather around these students, lay a hand on them, on Jim. I know this is different than what we normally do around here, but yes, I'm asking you to participate. And so feel free to come on forward. All right, and if you're still in your seat, that's okay too. I would love for you to just join me in prayer as we lift them up. God, we thank you for these students. We know that they are precious in your eyes. And what a joy it is to have them in the room with us this morning and to see the work that you're doing in their lives. And Lord, we pray for this time at camp that it would be far more than just recreation and relationship, but that it would be an opportunity for their hearts to grow deep in their understanding of who you are. Lord, we pray that you would draw them deeper into your heart, that they would come to love you with a passion that befits youth. I pray that you would lift them up and give them a heart that has a single desire for you. And we thank you for Jim and his leadership over this ministry, Lord. Would you prepare and equip him for this week ahead? And Lord, as he goes to the Philippines, would you bless the ministry that he's going to be doing there? We pray for both Jim and these students in these weeks ahead, Lord, that you would keep them safe in the trips that they're taking. And, um, and God, we pray that through all of this, you would be glorified and that they would be drawn ever closer to you. Bless the rest of our time together this morning, we pray as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, but before coming out here, I worked at a church of like 35,000 people, and you could never do something like that at a church of 35,000 people. So it's kind of fun to make you get out of your seat and come and do that. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 13, so I would love for you to turn there in your Bibles with me. Uh, we're actually going to end up back in Psalm 118 as well, so uh, you can maybe throw a bookmark in there. Um, in literature, a tragedy is a story where the character begins in a low spot, works their way to a high spot based on circumstances only to find themselves thrown back down to the lowly place of humility where they began. We call it a tragedy because our character, the hero, goes from low to high, only back to low again. Uh, if you've seen sort of the, 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 the image that represents theater of the two masks, you have a frowning mask and a smiling mask. 
The frowning mask represents tragedy because you think about a frown has that kind of shape. You go from low to high to low again. And this kind of story has really marked literature, especially in like the Western world since as long as literature has been written, all the way back to the Greek poets through Shakespeare and into the modern era as well. Maybe the next time you watch a movie, you can see this tragic theme uh, come to light. It's a captivating plot line. It, it draws us in. We meet a character who's very much like us. We watch their rise. We, we begin to identify with them only to watch them fall again. And we can relate to that in our personal life experiences sometimes. So you know some of these stories. Romeo and Juliet, right? A tragedy. I would say King Saul from the Bible, another tragedy. The Great Gatsby, which is one that a lot of high school students read, a tragedy as well. Well, I think the story of Israel and the story of Jerusalem in particular reads much like a tragedy. And that's what we're going to see in our text today as we look at Luke 13. Go back all the way to Abraham, this nobody man living in the land of his father, basically uh, camping out in his dad's house in the land of Haran. God comes to him and says, I choose you and I want you to go to this place where I have a plan for you. And through the centuries of history then, the nation of Israel rises to great heights. At the highest point, we find King David and to some degree even King Solomon And they devise that in the city of Jerusalem, Zion, the city of God, they'll build a great temple to God where the people of God can come and worship. And they create this temple to the God of all gods. And did you know that that it's been speculated that if there was an eighth wonder of the world, in the ancient world, it would have been the temple in Jerusalem. So glorious was it. From Solomon's original structure that he built to the second temple that Herod sort of turned into this lavish, uh, important, glorious building in the middle of a trade route through uh, the, the Sinai Peninsula or, or, or you know, the area of Israel. This became a nation with historical prestige. But as we see in the text that I'm about to read in Luke 13, its high point when we encounter this story had already passed. And Jerusalem had begun its tragic fall as Jesus now approaches this city that's rife with hypocrisy, corruption, and idolatry. So I'd love for you to look with me at Luke 13, and we're going to start in verse 31 and read through the end of the chapter. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood Under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you that you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
I think the first thing that we notice in this text, if, if we've been sort of following through the book of Luke, is that the Pharisees have kind of a radical change in behavior right here. For once, they're actually friendly to Jesus. Did you notice that? They come to him and they warn him of the danger that he's in at the hands of King Herod. They, they tell him, King Herod is looking to kill you. And this seems to be a huge role reversal for the Pharisees because at every point up until this moment in the Gospel of Luke, the Pharisees have been the consummate bad guys. They're, they're the anti-hero to the story. They hate Jesus. They've been seeking to trap him. And if we go to the Gospel of John, actually, we find that very early on in the ministry of Jesus, the Pharisees had plots to kill him. They were seeking his demise. So it's strange then, why the sudden change of heart? Why, why the behavior change? Well, I think what we find here in verse 31 is that this is actually a coordinated plot. Okay? It is not that the Pharisees suddenly have warmed their hearts to Jesus. Rather, the Pharisees and Herod together both wanted Jesus out of the picture. Because Jesus was challenging the current power structure. He was a threat to the stability of their leadership of the people. The ministry of Jesus was stirring up the rabble from the countryside, and all kinds of people were coming and attaching their names to him, following him, beginning to think that he might actually have come onto the scene to undo the tragedy of the story of Jerusalem and Israel. Jesus had come possibly as this Messiah that they'd been waiting for. He was going to once again cause the nation of Israel to rise to a place of power and prestige and prominence in the world. And if he did that, the leaders knew that it would come through a bloody rebellion where Herod and the Pharisees both would lose their tight-fisted grip in leadership over Israel. And so what's really happening here is the Pharisees are working in tandem with Herod to scare Jesus away to a place where he will be vulnerable and exposed so that he can be disposed away from the people. They're trying to chase him out. But Jesus is obviously wise. We've seen that again and again and again. He sees through their feigned concern to the wicked plot that's in their heart. And so he replies in this way. He says, go and tell that fox, Herod, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. I want to remind you, as I have over the last couple of weeks, that Jesus has always before him the purpose of his coming. To die in Jerusalem is what he has come to do. And so his reply carries a double meaning. I want you to see this here. First, in reference to his impending death, which he prophesies here, Jesus makes it very clear that he is on a mission. There's an allusion back to Luke 3. I know it was probably at this point years ago that we were back there in Luke chapter 3, but verses 4 through 6, you know this, Jesus stands up in the synagogue, he quotes this passage from Isaiah at the beginning of his ministry, he says that he's come to bring sight to the blind, to heal the, the lame, to set the captives free. That's the work that Jesus has been doing, and he references that here. And then there's an allusion forward to the work that Jesus 
will do on the cross where after three days he's going to rise from the dead and finish the task of destroying death by the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit. And the point is here, nothing can keep him from his mission that he has come to accomplish. Nothing will set him aside from his purpose. Not the power of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, nor the power of the king, Herod. And the second thing then that we find here, the second meaning is that Jesus makes it expressly clear, notice this, that Herod actually doesn't have anything to be concerned about with Jesus overthrowing his kingdom because Jesus actually won't be bothering Herod for too much longer. We've been talking a lot over the last couple of weeks about the kingdom of God and as it's expressed by Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus makes it, I would say, cryptically clear here that Herod the king has nothing to fear from him in an earthly sense. Jesus could not care less about using his power, his popularity, or his prestige to merely overthrow a king. That's not his goal. He hasn't come to take Herod's gold. He hasn't come to take Herod's throne. He's not come to take Herod's political dominion. That would be a victory far, far too small for Jesus. He's after so much more. Jesus is after nothing less than the total overthrow of every earthly authority in the most extreme sense of that idea. He is after the complete collapse of the ultimate authority. Do you understand? Death is what Jesus has come to destroy. He doesn't care about taking away Herod's piddly little earthly kingdom. Jesus has come to usher in the kingdom of God where God rules over the human heart And death dies. Just a little while later in Luke chapter 17, Jesus says these words. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Remember what I've said over the last couple of weeks. The kingdom of God is everywhere that the human heart is under the authority of God. And those who live in the kingdom of God... They fear neither death, nor kings, nor rulers, nor powers, nor any earthly authority. But look at verse 33, because we see that Jesus acknowledges that in a sense, Herod's going to get what he wants. And the Pharisees are going to get what they want as well. He says, nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jesus is going to die. That's the plan. And here's the tragedy of Jerusalem. The city that housed the temple of God. The city that was built as a dwelling place for God on earth. Now known as the city where the true people of God are going to put, are put to death because of their opposition for idolatry. So the place that God meant his name to dwell has now become the place where his name is silenced. The place where the prophets of old were stoned and executed for speaking the words of God to a people with rebellious hearts. In other words, although Jesus is warned that if he hangs around Jerusalem, he might be killed by Herod, he is determined to stay precisely because Jerusalem is where the true prophets of God 
were killed by the people of God. That's where he needs to be. There's so much crazy irony in what Jesus is saying, I think. The Savior of the people of God comes to the people of God, and they kill him. But the irony doesn't end there, right? Because in his death, he accomplishes their salvation. How great is our God, listen to this, that the wicked acts of men only become his instruments for accomplishing his purposes. How great is our God that knowing full well his own people would beat him, mistreat him, and execute him, he suffered all of that with great courage to save them from their evil, sinful ways. How great is our God that he would use the very instrument of death to kill death itself. But let me talk about, uh, continue to talk about the kingdom of God here for a second. Because I want you to see that the kingdom of God also challenges the institutions of men. The reason why the prophets were all killed when they came to Jerusalem, the reason why Jesus would be killed as he comes to Jerusalem, is because the kingdom of God is everywhere that the human heart is under the authority of God. But the human heart in its natural state hates the authority of God. The human heart despises the authority of God. And so the kingdom of God challenges the institutions of man and it demands that man bow to the authority of God, that man submit to God. And where men are told to come under the authority of God, the hearts of men, they essentially seethe and rage with rebellion. I mean, I really think all you have to do is look at the shift of our culture over the last maybe 10, 20 years to see that as our culture moves more towards secularism, we see more and more man's despising the authority of God. The prophets came to Jerusalem to call the people of God back to God to challenge the institutions of man that were erected falsely in the name of God, and they were killed for their opposition to it. And likewise, Jesus has come to challenge the institutions of man, both the political powers and the religious leaders, and they're going to plot to kill him for it. Now, here's what I want you to consider at this point, okay? I I think just this should cause us pause for some self-reflection. How close does your Christianity resemble the institutions of man? How much does your Christianity, your faith, your life resemble the culture around you? If we could examine your life in fine detail and maybe compare your life to your godless neighbor who lives next to you, across from you, down the street from you, they're completely enveloped in the institutions of man. Would we notice any kind of difference between your life and their life? Do you watch the same unwholesome movies, for example? Do you spend your money in the same vacuous, eternally insignificant ways? Do you trust in politicians, corporations, your own achievements, your bank account, your retirement fund? Is your life essentially built on the institutions of man with sort of a thin gilding of Jesus wrapped around the outside of it? Is that as far as it goes? Now listen, none of us can escape the culture that we live in, and I'm not suggesting that we do that. I believe God 
has placed you specifically in this period of time, in this place, for a purpose to proclaim the gospel to a lost world. So I'm not suggesting that we bail out and try and escape the culture. But even if we cannot escape the culture that God has placed us in, we dare not assimilate into it. Do you understand? Even though God has put us here, we dare not become that which is around us. As Christians, you need to understand right now, if your faith is in Jesus, you're actually living in the kingdom of God right now. And his kingdom will not suffer any king alongside of Christ Jesus, who is king alone. And so I would ask you to take a serious look at your life to see if your life is really at odds with the institutions of man that have been built up around you. And if your life is not at odds with this world, then I think the clear teaching of the New Testament is that you may not actually be in the kingdom of God. And I don't want you to stay there outside of the kingdom of God because that would be tragic. Now please understand, this isn't a threat, okay? It's just a plea for repentance. A plea to claim the mercy and compassion and tenderness of our God who saves to step fully into his kingdom and not live outside of it or not live with one foot in and one foot out. Look at the next verses, and I want you to see how huge the heart of God is for those who are not in his kingdom. God's stance towards mankind, it's patience, it's long-suffering, it's kindness, gentleness. And so there's still time for us to leave the kingdoms of man, the institutions of man, the hopes of man, and come under the wise, loving authority of God. Verse 34. Man, can't you just hear the depth of passion in Jesus as he says this? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? Behold, your house is forsaken. Here, the tragedy of Jerusalem, I would even say that the tragedy of mankind is brought into full focus. Christ Jesus, he makes it clear, he came to establish a new kingdom and his posture towards Jerusalem is his posture towards all of mankind. He comes to us like a loving mother, like a hen, seeking to scoop up her vulnerable chicks. He comes to us with arms stretched out, eager to embrace us. But all that he receives for all of his grace and all of his love is a bold and intolerant slap in the face. That's what he gets from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was supposed to be the kingdom of God, the place where God ruled over the hearts of men, but it was not so. It was rebellious. Instead of loving God and living under his authority, it had become a den of lawbreakers seeking to set up their own kingdom on property that did not belong to them. But don't you see the correlation there to the human heart? Consider this for a second. The human heart was made to be the kingdom of God. When Adam and Eve were made, they were made to be God's most glorious apex of his creation, priests unto him in his garden palace, the place where God truly and only ruled over his special creation. 
but they fell, and so it was not so. The human heart was made to be a temple unto the Lord, the place where his glory would dwell. Mankind was created to be a people for God's own possession who would trust him and honor him and love him, but it was not so because we fell into sin and rebellion. So listen, instead, the human heart by nature, it's a den of lawbreakers. Let me say that again because I think it's significant. The position of mankind apart from God is that we have sought to set up our own kingdom on property that does not belong to us, our own hearts. We cast Christ out even as he comes with open arms to embrace us and offer his tender love and grace. In Luke chapter 20, verse 25, Jesus, he settles a dispute uh, about paying taxes. You're probably familiar with this unforgettable line. He says, render unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar, and render unto God that which belongs to God. And you see the implication, I hope. What belongs to God? It's your heart, of course. God does not care about your money. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want your Sunday morning. God doesn't even want you to behave. He does not want you to be a good person. What he wants is your heart. And so you need to understand this because God wants everything and nothing less. When he claims your heart, he's claiming it all. He wants your heart to be established firmly in the kingdom of God, the place where the authority of God rules over the hearts of men. Uh, We got done with a very interesting theological discussion regarding election and predestination yesterday, Calvinism and Arminianism, and I'm not going to open that can of worms right now, don't worry. But I do want you to see what Jesus says about Jerusalem. Because it's right here in the text about Israel, about the people who were supposed to belong to him. Look at the end of verse 34. You were not willing is the condemnation he brings against Jerusalem. Now, I don't presume to fathom all of the mysteries of God when it comes to how and when and why God saves people. But I will presume upon you to say this, to cry out to you, to plead with you. Do not be unwilling. Do not be unwilling. Don't harden your heart. Christ has come with open arms, with a free offer of grace and redemption, of love and salvation. And so do not be unwilling to receive him in this offer that he makes. And I'm not going to lie to you because I want you to understand that when Christ gives you this offer, it is an exchange where for his embrace, he actually demands from you everything, everything. Your whole heart is what he desires, which is already his property. And so don't be unwilling to freely take what he freely gives And understand this too, that the consequence of being unwilling is tragedy. In verse 35, look at what Jesus says. He says, behold, your house is forsaken. Those who refuse to enter the kingdom of God, they end up forsaken. Those who reject Jesus like Jerusalem rejected him are forsaken. Christ has come to claim human hearts. And if we forsake him in his claim... 
then we are forsaken ourselves and there's no hope. There's nothing left for us in this life. We may rise in this life only to find that we fall into tragedy in the life to come, the ultimate tragedy. Now, our passage ends with this prophetic claim. Jesus says, I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a prophecy that proves that Jesus is a true and authentic prophet. If we were to flip over just a couple of pages to Luke 19, we would see that this prophecy has an immediate fulfillment in verse 38 in the story of Christ. Only a short time after this teaching here, Jesus is going to enter again the city of Jerusalem for the last time on his way to the cross. But the way that he enters would never leave you to believe that he will die the shameful death of a criminal shortly thereafter. After spending three years traveling the Judean countryside, ministering to people, expressing the love of God, healing, teaching about the kingdom of God, restoring the broken, the popularity of Jesus has reached this fevered pitch. And the people of Israel are eager for an earthly king who's going to right the institutions of men so that the proud are humbled and those who are low are lifted up. The peasants, the average everyday folk, long for Jesus to raise up an army to essentially overthrow the Pharisees and King Herod. And so as Jesus enters Jerusalem, the anticipation, it's so thick you could cut it with a knife. The people are singing praises to the name of Jesus. They're expecting a new Davidic king, a political Messiah. And so they cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But the people have their eyes set far too low in looking to Jesus for that kind of Messiah. And so when Jesus fails to meet their expectations, when he fails to overthrow the government and become the earthly king that they desire, just like that, they reverse their cries and they join with the Pharisees to yell, crucify him, crucify him. And the words of Jesus ring loud and clear. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. Two final things for me to say here. First, I really want you to see this because, um, you know, Doug, when, when he got up here, he, he asked, how many of you are great this morning? And many of you cried out, but I'm certain that not everybody in the room is great. And so I want you to see this thing here that When in fact it appears that we are forsaken, it's actually then that God is closest to us. God is in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem had indeed forsaken God and turned from him, and yet God in the flesh was standing at the gates of Jerusalem. Right there in their midst, he was in the process of working salvation for all who would see 
indeed how forsaken and broken and far from God they were. And so I want to encourage you as a Christian, when our lives appear to look most like a tragedy, that's precisely when God is closest to us and most powerfully working out his redemption in us. For those who hope in Jesus, there's no such thing as being forsaken. Remember, Christ cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And because he was forsaken, he took our forsakenness upon himself. And therefore, we've been lifted out of that tragedy into glory itself. The second thing, and give me just a few more minutes, this final line. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Did you catch that line in Psalm 118 when Shelley read it for us before I got up here? This is an old prophecy from Psalms. And it's such a beautiful conclusion to chapter 13. I just want to highlight a couple things for you. If you have been paying attention to this theme of the kingdom of God, there's a beautiful correlation here between Luke 13 and Psalm 118. I I would love for you to just turn back there as I point out a few things. I believe that there is actually a strong connection here, and I just want to mention these. Starting in verse 19, it says, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, and the righteous shall enter through it. Do you remember just last week in Luke, what what did Jesus claim about himself? He claimed that he was the narrow door, that he was the gate. The gate of righteousness that we must enter through the narrow gate, and we come into the kingdom through him. Then verse 21, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Remember the woman from three weeks ago? I know that that's going quite a ways back in your memory. She was bent over and repressed in Luke chapter 13, tormented by Satan, yet saved from her bondage by Jesus. He became her salvation. Verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Here is Christ Jesus, the cornerstone. He came to his own people to bring to them a message of salvation upon which they could build their lives for eternity, and they rejected him. But it was the purpose of God that he would be rejected so that God could build for himself from the sacrifice of Christ a new temple in the hearts and lives of Christians. Man, that is marvelous in our eyes, is it not? Then verse 24, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Indeed, God has made his light to shine upon us in the face of Christ. And we are those, therefore, who rightly proclaim, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless him not from temples made by man, not through institutions of man, but from the temple of our heart where we live under the authority of God for his honor and for his glory. Let me pray for us.
God, we thank you for the work that you did in your son Jesus. We thank you for his willingness to suffer, for his willingness to go to the cross. We thank you that he had set his face upon Israel or on upon the cross, upon Jerusalem. Lord, we worship you for these things. We thank you that you came to establish the kingdom of God and not merely to reform the institutions of man. And Lord, we thank you too for this truth that when it appears that we are forsaken, in fact, those are the times that you are most near to us. And so again, we praise you for this truth that because your son was forsaken, we are redeemed. And we worship you in that this morning. Amen.